the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. There ends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of it and the power of it. Your word is living and active, and just hearing your word read is impactful on our minds and on our souls. But Lord, we also know that we need to have ears to hear and hearts to receive from you. We need your Holy Spirit to work so that we can receive aright the things that you have spoken and the things that will be preached. So, Lord, please be with us as we turn from your holy word to preaching, that we would nonetheless, through the human form of preaching that you've ordained, that we would ultimately hear the voice of you, the living God, and that it would minister to our souls. Lord, we come to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, again with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're starting to wind down the great book of Hebrews To be honest with you, if I could, I would go back to the beginning and start preaching through it again. Sometimes I wonder, after 60 sermons, one more to come will be 61, what happens to all these sermons when they're preached? Do they have any impact? Do they have any effect? What happens to them as you've sat faithfully under 60 of them and they've been preached from this pulpit along with many other sermons, what becomes of sermons. I trust that they had an impact, at least in the moment that they were preached, and that trusting that they'll have lasting impact somehow in your lives. I think about that about many sermons. I think about the fact that I've been privileged to preach over, over thousands of sermons. It boggles my mind. But I also realize that I'm just a human that gets the privilege of preaching struck me, some of you will know the name Willard Willink. He was an ordained lay preacher in the Christian Reformed Church, a faithful preacher in the Christian Reformed Church, and I'll never forget seeing him. He was probably 93 years old. They lived down the street from us, and he was in his little barn where he did a lot of work, and he did his farming, but he had a stack of his sermons there, and he was feeding them one by one into a fire, and that struck me all those years of sermons, but he knew that they had done the work that they were intended to do at the time he was preaching them. Now, keep in mind, Willard started preaching way before uh, we had the modern recording technology and the media we have. So if you need to, you can always go back and listen to sermons. But the more important thing is not sermons so much as the Word of God itself the Word of God itself. There is a very clear reason why whenever I and many preachers read the Bible, we say, this is the Word of God. And then when we finish reading the Bible itself, we say, there ends the reading 
of God's word because there's a distinction, a sharp distinction between that which is inerrant and infallible in the original language and that which is highly, in, highly fallible in your pulpit. It's true for every preacher. So we want to make that distinction. The good thing is, with the Word of God, we can keep going back over it and back over it. And I can guarantee if you do it through prayer and real interest, you'll always gain from it. Even if you were to read Hebrews over and over again, you'll gain every time you read from it. The Word of God remains. Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Now, as I conclude this series on Hebrews, I've decided to switch things around here at the end. There's that beautiful benediction in verses 20 and 21, and I want to save that for the very last sermon, to leave with a good word, with a benediction. So this evening, what I want to do is just look at the letter overall. As the author is leaving off of his letter, he sends greetings to the leadership. He reminds them that Timothy is going to come and see them. He gives them this blessing of grace that will be upon them. But what I want to do is to kind of review what we've been through in the book of Hebrews. What the author calls a brief note. A brief note. Thirteen chapters of a brief note. Now whether you look at the brief note as the whole book of Hebrews or just The exhortations in chapter 13, nonetheless, there's a lot for us to absorb and a lot for us to remember. What we always need to keep in mind that this is God speaking. It's God breathed, God spoken through his author, the writer of the Hebrews. And so when God speaks, we need to make sure that we listen. Now, this was primarily originally written to Jewish believers. So it's rich with the Old Testament. And the Jewish believers needed to understand that there was a radical transformation from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and into the New Covenant and the New Testament. So I'll say tonight, if you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, be patient. But also be reminded that for you to understand God's Word better, you need to understand that everything from Genesis to Revelation is connected and interwoven, and the central figure in all of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine said, The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And all throughout the old, and then clearly in the new, the focus is the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself said, after the resurrection, speaking to disciples who were perplexed about the whole passion and the the story that he had been risen or that his body was out of the grave, he says, from from beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus, this is, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, when speaking to the disciples, was not shy, and rightly so. He is God in human form. He's not shy to say that Old Testament is all about me. That's one of the main things that the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Now, this is the word of God from God's mouth. So I want you to jump back to the beginning of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And don't worry, I'm not really going to preach through the whole book again. Uh, But we need to remember that God has been speaking. And so the very beginning of the book is like this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Just stop and think about what's been said there. The author begins with the eternal second person of the Trinity. There's no question he's talking about deity in those first verses. But that's what's astounding is then he talks about how he made purification for sin. He took on human flesh, bore the sins of his people, died and resurrected. But this Jesus, this person Jesus, is fully God and fully man. The Son of God, the central figure of all Scripture, the central figure in redemption or salvation. He goes on to emphasize how he is the eternal Son of God. If you continue to read in chapter 1, he hammers that point again and again. And here he is manifest in the flesh in order to save the likes of us. He came in the flesh. Jump over to chapter 2. Over to chapter 2. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, manifested in the flesh to save the likes of us. So eternal son of God comes to earth in humility, and then we find out that this same Jesus is crowned with glory. So that's the basic picture. Incarnation, life of perfection, passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign. It's all right there. And the point that the author is making is that this Jesus... The unique person of this Jesus is the only one who can mediate between holy God and sinful man. He's the only one whose work is sufficient to atone, to pay for, to answer for our sins. There is no other Savior, there's no other mediator that will do. That's a point that the author of Hebrews addresses again and again through the Scriptures and here through Hebrews. Driving home that point. How does he do it? A number of different ways. But he's especially addressing those who might think that there's still some legitimacy to the Old Testament or the Old Covenant ways. And so he starts to make an argument, even speaking about the good things that we learn in the Old Testament, even good things that we learn from a picture of eternity. So he starts with the fact that, that while angels are glorious and while angels are great, the second person of the Trinity is higher than the angels. He's not an angel. He's God, the eternal Son. 
But in order to save us, this one who's superior to the angels humbles himself, becoming lower than the angels in a spiritual sense, taking on our human flesh. Then he moves to Moses. He's superior even to Moses, the greatest leader, the greatest prophet of all time. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus speaks with full authority, with the fullness of the Holy Spirit with his perfectly, spiritually, wholly calculated words. Jesus is the perfect prophet. The perfect prophet. The perfect leader for God's people. Jesus is superior to all the priests. He's that priest in the order of Melchizedek who who we really don't know the beginning of where Melchizedek came from. He came out of nowhere. He is... Uh, the king or the prince of, 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 of peace. He's from the city, uh, but we don't really know where he's from. We don't really know. And in the same way, Jesus incarnate comes to us from, from an eternal mystery coming to earth. So he's this priest in the order of Melchizedek. Sorry, I flubbed that up, but the point is, he's the greatest priest. The priests were ordained in the Old Testament to represent the people of God. They had to purify themselves again and again because they themselves were sinners. And in order to represent the people of God to atone for their sins, they had to cleanse themselves, make sacrifices, go into the temple, and plead on behalf of the people that their sins would be forgiven time and time again. Through the ritual, the cycle of the year, through the high holy days, that was what the priests had to do. But Jesus, Jesus is the high priest whose mediation is perfect And what's absolutely stunning about Jesus is that he's a priest who actually gives himself as the sacrifice for his people. That he's not going into the temple and sprinkling the blood of animals. He's giving himself. If you want to look that up a little closer, look at Hebrews chapter 9. But not only that, maybe this is even more astounding, is that Jesus is that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Were you to go to the beginning of the Old Testament and all the way down to the end of the Old Testament, you would find sacrifice after sacrifice, bloodshed after bloodshed of animal after animal repeatedly, day after day, year after year, throughout the ages of the church. But none of that bloodshed was enough to satisfy for the sins of sinners like us. Only the blood of Jesus shed, giving willingly on his behalf, sufficient to save us. Jesus answers all that. All that. The end of those perpetual sacrifices. And then he's that Joshua. That Joshua who actually brings us not into an earthly promised land, but into heaven itself. To sum it up, the Old Testament is is filled, is filled with types and signs. Types and signs. All kinds of types, signs, prophecies, and promises. But Jesus has fulfilled them all. Jesus is the substance behind the shadowy things that we saw in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew Christians needed to know this for sure because it had been their devout religion 
from the beginning, from the time Abraham was called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These things were ordained. They were good things. But the author drives home, now those things are obsolete. That word, that word is very powerful and very final. It's obsolete. In case anyone thinks that that's something man-made, here's what God says in Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. No longer put your trust in those things of the old covenant. Those rituals that were once good have all been fulfilled. And it's about to be finalized, by the way, very permanently in a very vivid display when the temple itself is completely destroyed in 70 AD, soon after this. God could not be any more clear that things have been finalized in Christ. Well, that's important not only for these Hebrew Christians to remember, it's important for all of us to remember. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ that takes us from fear to faith. For those who believe and know that because Jesus came and lived and died and conquered sin and rose again and ascended to the right hand of glory, that they can have assurance of salvation. The work has been done. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. And I'm going to skip over some of the passages that I did have in mind. It's hard to know what's absolutely critical to review and what we can leave for some other time. This is 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's finalized. It's done. God made a promise. He made a promise on his very own existence that salvation would come, and it's come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who believe, there's no more fear of condemnation. No more fear of condemnation. Salvation is secure. Now, believers can be encouraged to persevere in the faith, having a whole different perspective on whatever comes to pass in life. No fear even of the worst things that man can do. They can press ahead. But that's only true for those who do believe. The book of Hebrews is filled with warnings to those who reject. And the striking thing about the warning, especially in Hebrews, 
to those who reject is that they're all within the bounds of the covenant community. When the author points back to rebellion, when he points back to hardened hearts, when he points back to those who didn't hear, those who didn't, weren't able to enter into the promised land, it's all within the Old Testament covenant community. That is very sobering. It's very sobering for the church today. Very sobering for the church today. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. How many times throughout the Old Covenant did God say, Hear my word, listen. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your father put me to the test, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Jump over to chapter 10. The warnings don't stop. 10.26. Some of the most sobering, in my humble opinion, passages you can read are found in Hebrews. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a very stark warning. And it's to the people that will find themselves in the community, the covenant community, even in the new covenant community, that applies to the church. For those who reject, well, God has spoken from his mouth to your ears. And what he has spoken is that salvation has come in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And if you reject Jesus as Savior, you're still under wrath. You're still facing that condemnation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect 
such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But how? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's the warning of Hebrews. That's the warning of Scripture. The good news is that Jesus has come to save sinners like us. The bad news is that man hardens his heart against the gospel of grace. The good news is that the power of the Holy Spirit in saving souls is overwhelming, is overwhelming in those in whom he works and stirs up and shows the need for this one Savior. Shows the need for this one Savior. And it comes through the power of the word. Hebrews chapter 4. Here's the thing. If you've heard the Word of God, if you've heard the Bible, you have heard. I could ask you the question, have you heard His voice? It's a voice that can't be ignored, so I would say you have heard it. Put aside everything Pastor Clett has said for the past 60 sermons and think about what you've heard from God's Word and recognize that you've heard His voice. Through this powerful word. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 beginning in verse 12. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit. Of joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give account. And we will give account. And the simple answer of the believer is that I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have no other argument, no other plea than that Jesus died for me. The unbeliever has no excuse, has no out. They've neglected that great salvation offered in the gospel. Ears closed hearts hardened, sometimes to the point where even the word of God sounds like babble to them. So the, the question isn't really, I don't think, for those at least who have heard the word, isn't, have you heard the voice of God? You have. The question is, have you received it with open ears and a soft heart? Or have you hardened your heart and closed your ears? So the real question is, have you heard? Yes, you have heard is the answer. The real question is, has it changed your life? Has it changed your life? I don't like to generally speak to a congregation of devout people as if you don't believe. But I'm also not a fool. And I'm also not naive. Because as the writer of Hebrews reminded us numerous times that even those in the covenant, even those in the church, need to be warned 
about the importance of trusting in Jesus Christ and the importance of staying steadfast in trusting in Jesus because many do go astray. And so I would be remiss if I didn't say something even to a small gathering of mostly, if not all, professing Christians if I didn't say that you need to be warned that if you reject, if you ignore If you live your life without Christ, you're in great danger. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God without the covering of Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. However, However, if you trust in Jesus, the other thing that the author of Hebrews is doing is instilling in those who have believed and who have trusted to have assurance that the work of salvation has been done. And your fear of God now is reverence. Your fear of God in Christ is not that you're still living under the reign of wrath because of your rebellion. No, now you've come to God through Jesus Christ. And so turn to chapter 12, beginning in verse 24. Actually, go back to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then jump down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In response to such a great salvation, what do we have? What do we have but to live our lives as thank offerings to God, that our lives would be those sacrifices offered as a sweet aroma to God, not for our salvation. That's been done. But out of gratitude and out of love for God, serving, loving, trusting, abiding in him, God has spoken. God has spoken. He's spoken to us things of lasting, everlasting importance. And may it be that God has granted us all ears to hear and hearts to receive, believe, and respond. If you find yourself tonight saying, I have terrible doubt whether I'm right with God, my urge to you is that you pray, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, open my ears 
to hear the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Soften my heart where I've hardened my heart against you, that it might be warmed and broken and made new. Holy Spirit, touch my soul and bring me from death to life. Let's pray. Almighty God, we know that you are the mighty God, the one true and living God. We know that in your mercy and in your great design to redeem souls, sinful souls like ours, you sent your Son out of, out of a love that we really can't understand, that we can't comprehend. You sent your Son out of love. And the Son came out of love for us to bear our sins and to even bear your wrath in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And out of your love, you've sent your Holy Spirit to open blinded eyes and unclog deafened ears and to take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh, to take souls that were once dead in trespasses and sins and bring them to life through the resurrection power of Jesus. You are a glorious, merciful, compassionate God. And we praise you that you've shown mercy to the likes of us. And we give you praise and adoration, and we ask that we would diligently live lives of thanksgiving. Thank offerings unto you, the God of our salvation. We come to you in the name of our Savior, who was once dead, but who now lives and rules 